This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have certainly seen plenty of big storms this past year, hurricanes, floods, and more. We have dealt with the wildfires out west and now mudslides there. The cost of these natural disasters in 2017 was $306 billion, the most ever in U.S. history. So what are the expectations we can see in 2018? Howard Kunruther, co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center here at the Wharton School, joining me in studio, as well as a professor of decision sciences and public policy. And also with us, Billy Fleming, who is a research coordinator at the McCarg Center at the University of uh, Pennsylvania School of Design. Great seeing you both. Happy New Year to you both. You too. Good to be here. Um, we've certainly seen, Howard, obviously a lot of storms uh, in the last year. And, and while we can't tell how many types of storms we will see, obviously what, when you look from the, a little bit of a historical perspective, what was the pattern that we are seeing if you look back in the prior three years to the numbers of storms and the violence of these storms and obviously the cost to our, to our society? Well, I think that it's very clear that things are getting worse now than they have been in the past. And I think what we saw last year, particularly in, in uh, Houston with respect to uh, Hurricane Harvey, which caused an enormous amount of damage, is a lot of uh, – the losses from these disasters are now even coming in urban flooding and things that had never really been put on the agenda before. Storm surge is another part that has actually impacted. And I think when you talk with people who are experts on the hurricane, they are definitely saying that there are more intense hurricanes that have occurred. Uh, it's not so much that there are the frequency is necessarily increased, but the pattern and the impact of these disasters is much greater now than it has been in the past, which is one of the reasons why we had this uh, very, very large loss in uh, 2017. Which is interesting because, as I wanted to mention, it didn't seem like we had more hurricanes than we did in, in years past. It was just the, the volatility of them and the impact that they had on various locations. Yes, and in particularly in the in the context of uh, uh, Harvey, I mentioned that because that's a broader pattern. It happened in Baton Rouge earlier, a couple of years before. Right. You're going to have a lot more disasters in areas that thought they were immune, and most of the people in Utah and felt they really didn't have to take protection. Most of them had not bought flood insurance, for example, because they didn't see the likelihood of this disaster. And it was a low probability event. It isn't something that would happen necessarily again next year. So the concern is obviously, as we've talked with you on the show, all kinds of different bodies of water, but seemingly just as much are, are some of the rivers that we have uh, in the country, which are, are rising for a, a variety of different reasons at, at higher levels than we've seen before. Right. And I think the other point I'd want to make uh, is that there's been a lot more development in these areas. And so as a result yeah. of that, you're going to find two things happening. More damage going to occur. And also you'll have runoff from uh, concrete and whatnot. And so you'll have ri rivers rising for that reason. And we have to mention climate change. I mean, yeah. obviously, that is going to play a pattern. It's not a, a role here. But it may not happen next year in terms of necessarily saying this is due to climate change, but you are observing sea level rise, and I think the climate scientists are pretty much in agreement on that. Well, Billy, the urban flooding part of it I, I find is interesting. It plays to a lot of what you do is how cities are having to kind of adjust their mindset for all of these different types of events, uh, flooding included, uh, moving forward each and every year. Yeah, I mean, I think to pick up on a couple of points that Howard put forward, um, you know, there are two big things that are involved in that kind of a problem for cities. One is that 
there was a lot less room for all of the water to go, and that was the story in Houston, right? Yeah. I, I don't think anything could have done much to prevent a year's worth of uh, rain in a weekend. Yeah. Um, but there's no question that the damage would have been lessened had there been more space for that water to flow and either be stored or infiltrate or evapotranspirate. Um, and the other is that we've put a lot more people and a lot more uh, infrastructure and a lot more assets in the floodplain. And we haven't done a good job of updating our maps to know where the floodplain really is uh, and the way that we tend to measure flood risk, uh, at least uh, on the policy side, uh, isn't always the clearest to understand for policymakers and for the people who live in these places that Howard and I might consider high risk, but who, you know, the average homeowner might not really know they're at risk. Right. Um, and the other part, too, is that in a lot of these cities uh, are, are coastal cities in general that are dealing with the threat of uh, storm surge or, you know, massive precipitation events like Hurricane Harvey, um, climate change isn't just uh, a sea level rise problem. We know we've put more energy into the atmosphere. And the inevitable result of that, if you, you know, read the climate science literature, is that we're going to have more intense events. We may not have more, but we're going to have more intense events uh, in places where there's less room for the water to go and where we put a lot more people and a lot more uh, public assets. Hard. Yeah. Well, I think it, what Billy pointed out is absolutely right. And I think the intense hurricanes, uh, you can't say necessarily this was due to climate change, but we certainly know the climate scientists have said that we'll have more of those. But I think one of the most important points that uh, he just indicated was that people often feel that they're safe when they're not. They see a 100-year floodplain. They say we're no. not in, a fl- uh, in an area which is going to flood with uh, – uh, greater than one in a hundred chance, and therefore we're safe. And I think Houston was a classic example of that. I mean, there there really aren't the maps that are needed to deal with this, and this is one of the most important things that has to be done when we think about the renewal of the flood insurance program, and we think in general about having good assessment of the risk. Because if we don't have a good assessment of the risk, it's going to be awfully hard to manage it better, and also people may misinterpret essentially what is happening to them or will happen to them. Well, you've mentioned remapping here on on this show on on a variety of occasions. Where do we stand on that right now? Well, it's hard to say. I think a piece of legislation now is in front of Congress that should be emphasizing funding for mapping, and it's not clear whether that will happen or not. This is the renewal of the National Flood Insurance Program, which is a national program for dealing with this risk. And in the past, Congress has cut funding for mapping. And as a result of that, there hasn't been the kind of effort that should be made. Uh, the Federal ma- the uh, federal Mapping Advisory Committee for t- FEMA, I should, for full disclosure, I'm a member of that, have been pushing very, very hard for better maps, maps in the spirit of exactly what Billy was saying, maps that are much more accurate, yeah. maps that will highlight essentially what the flood risk is going to be for a whole variety of different floods. And if you have that happening, and there are state like North Carolina that are doing that right now, but in general, that hasn't happened across the country. Yeah, I mean, in terms of whether or not we're going to get the money or the political support together to do this, I think that's an open question. There are like three other uh, self-created crises that Congress has to deal with first before they turn to the National Flood Insurance Program, and it's not clear that they'll even get to those. So I'm hopeful but not optimistic that we'll find a way to do this. Uh, it's a conversation that's been going on for a long time. So then d- does this conversation need to be handled more at the local and or state level to move this forward, whether or not that the funding is even there as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that yes and no, right? So it's great when states and cities can t- and counties can take some of that on themselves. The reality is most cannot. They either don't have the in-house technical expertise they need to do the flood risk analysis and to generate right. the maps, or they don't have the money uh, to put into a study like that. 
Um, we need federal leadership on this. Uh, it's been sorely lacking for a long time. Just one point on the National Flood Insurance Program that uh, uh, Billy mentioned in terms of not coming up. It is set to expire on January 19th. And so the, yeah. e the issue is going the to be for, we do yeah. not know what is going to happen in the next two or three days because it's been extended a couple of times. And I think the hope that most of us have who have been thinking about this is that it, it gets extended one more time. There is some chance that it yeah. might actually be put into an omnibus bill, in which case that I think would be very unfortunate. Well, what about a place? like California, which obviously, uh, you know, for the better part of the last month and a half, two months of, of last year, was dealing with all of the wildfires, and now they're dealing with, you know, significant mudslides. So, I mean, if it, it's the old boxing philosophy, if the left one doesn't get you, the right one will. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, don't, I think it's the same set of problems. People often don't think about the fact that they have a problem here. The wildfires are extraordinarily costly and dangerous, as we all know. Uh, how we actually deal with them is, I think, an open question in terms of whether or not you restrict development in certain areas or whether you have building codes or other things that would hopefully prevent these kinds of things from happening. But it's really, really tough when you have something that I think is, again, a low probability event. But when it starts, it can be extraordinarily dangerous. And in similar ways to the flooding problem along the coast, right, there's all kinds of inertia-related issues out in California that relate to wildfires and mudslides. We're not going to go in and deconstruct highways and communities and all kinds of other things that are in the you know high-risk wildfire areas are right. now high-risk mudslide areas. So figuring out a way to use this as an opportunity to rebuild better and to redesign, whether it's building codes or no-build zones or other ways to sort of prevent or manage the risk uh, with a little more foresight, uh, we've got to use this as an opportunity. So then how do you also deal with the fact that, and, and we're talking with Howard Kunruther of the Wharton School and Billy uh, Fleming of the University of Pennsylvania School of Design uh, about uh, natural disasters and cities preparing themselves for these types of storms. How do we also deal with the issue that we're seeing more and more growth in our bigger cities, uh, the build-out, whether it be of whether that be of people moving into the cities or companies moving into cities and the building uh, of these large you know, facilities, new roadways. How do you deal with that and still manage all of these other concerns as well? Yeah, I mean, I've said this on the show several times now, I think, but yeah. we, need more, we need more and better investments in good planning. Uh, too many cities, and Houston is chief among them, I think are content to just let development lead uh, all of this stuff or developers lead all of this stuff. Um, and we have the bill for that now coming due. And in places that have been, I think, a little more thoughtful about where and how and why they build the things they build, uh, their risk has been better managed. Uh, there's a reason why North Carolina's coastal you know, risk management program is so robust. It's because they put a lot of money and a lot of time and resources into thinking about risk management there. Howard? So let me, let me uh, highlight a point that Billy made earlier and I think is uh, so important. We have to take advantage of these recent disasters to try to do the kind of planning that you're suggesting. Because if we don't do that, we're going to find that most of these cities and states and localities are not going to do anything for a couple of reasons. One is they, they would like to get more tax revenue. So economic yeah. development is obviously something in, on their agenda and to the extent that that will happen uh, and may happen without the appropriate land use regulation 
violations in building codes, you're going to have more, more damage. And the other aspect is the broad issue that we're all very short-run oriented, all of us. Myopia is part of the game. And so we're going to have to figure out how we develop long-term strategies that are going to be effective and that communities and states and localities can somehow see there are benefits to doing this kind of planning now rather than saying, really, we don't want to do anything. We have, And Florida has been a good example of that. I'll just give one very small example. Florida had the worst building codes in the country prior yeah. to Hurricane Andrew. I've said this before yeah. on the show, but I think it's important to say it now. Hurricane Andrew did an enormous damage to Miami and Dade County in 1992. Today, they have the best building codes. Today, they have actually taken un, uh, under advisement that they had better do this in order to be able to somehow make sure that they are safer. So it took <laughs> the disaster. Well, let's see if whether Harvey uh, will do the same thing for Houston and other places in Texas, and where the Irma and Maria will also do that. There were, it was more than just Harvey that happened. Yeah, yeah I would just say, uh, to add on to that, it's easy to understand the impulse for some of these places to want to rebuild as quickly and as true to the day they were before the storm uh, afterwards, because you want to get people back in their homes, you want to get businesses yeah. back up and running, you want to take care of the immediate aftermath of a crisis. Um so it's not, you know, as simple, I think, as we're laying out here and that, you know, it's just a matter of building back better. That's a really uh, tricky political and policy problem to manage because, you know, you don't want the last thing you would want is for people to feel like they're not welcome back in the city that they were pushed out of by a storm, especially if they moved into a neighborhood like the one they might have lived in in Houston, where they right. really had no idea what the risk was. Which is part of the concern, I, I believe, in the uh, in the wake of Katrina as well, mm -hmm. when you had all of those people that were uh, especially like the uh, lower ninth ward in in New Orleans, uh, who were obviously pushed out because of the uh, overflow of the of the dams and the dikes in, in and around New Orleans, and I, if memory serves me, there are still portions of that area that are still you know not inhabited. Correct? Yeah, and many of the folks who were pushed out as a result of that have never been able to come back. Right. Even other people have moved into their neighborhoods, but they were never able to come right. back. And many of them moved to Texas. Let's yeah. hope they didn't move to Houston, yeah. uh, where they had the next disaster. Uh, and, and as a result, you have a whole set of questions. How do you then develop these areas when people have moved out? Well, let me ask you this. I mean, we talk about, obviously, we know that there is a hurricane season pretty much every year. Uh, we know that there's an expectation of, of severe winter storms, you know, in portions of this country. But what about places like in the Midwest where they have to deal with tornadoes, at, you know, from time to time? I mean, you have to have a plan in place for this. And again, it's the updating of that plan and constantly being prepared just to be ready for storms like that. Yeah, again, I, it's a matter of investing in those things uh, oftentimes at the front end, right, where you have money in emergency services so people have a good way – people have a good risk communication system so they know when there's a storm event, whether it's a tornado or seasonal flooding in the Midwest is probably more common. Uh, they have, if they want it or need it, uh, access to money or loans to be able to build fallout shelters, not yeah. fallout shelters, but shelters to sort of take cover from the storm. Um, those are easier events to manage uh, oftentimes than coastal storms and then fires and uh, earthquakes and those kinds of things. If for no other reason, then the options are much more limited, right? You're not going to be able to design a city to not get hit by a tornado. 
Just one little anecdotal example of a number of years ago, Topeka, Kansas, didn't think that it was actually going to ever have a, a tornado. They felt they were immune for a whole variety of reasons. And then they had a very serious one, uh, unexpected, yeah. simply because of the, the tradition or the myth or whatever you want to say, yeah. that they were immune to that. And they actually took advantage of that. And they actually developed it because it went through an area that was actually scheduled for redevelopment and whatnot. And so they took advantage of the tornado to actually try to improve the city, recognizing, obviously, that if they were going to build structures there, they'd better be immune. And the other very uh, part is that people generally are protected against tornado damage because uh -huh. they have homeowners coverage. They are not protected against floods and water damage from hurricanes. And that's one of the big problems we have. And they're not protected from earthquakes in California yeah. because very few people have car, uh, insurance there. Well, how much of the change in the building codes in a place, let's just take Florida, for example, uh, has been looking at the, you know, the, the larger buildings, the office buildings that are in a particular town, and how much of it has been also the family structures as well? Well, that's a good question. I don't know all the details, and maybe Billy has more data on that than I do. I know that what they have done is they've done something they didn't do before Andrew. They had building codes on the books, but they weren't enforced. Right. They had stricter building codes now, and I believe those are building codes for both families and for structures. But most important, they're making sure they're enforced. And I think that's the big issue in many of these things. You can have building codes there um, in place, but if, they, if somehow the developers and contractors aren't dealing with this— yeah then, of course, you have a major problem. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I don't think there was a huge difference in the way they treated residential and commercial properties there. It was just an enforcement issue oftentimes. And uh, even in parts of Texas uh, during you know Hurricane Ike, which is, I guess, almost 10 years ago now, um, that was a big problem there. They didn't have great building codes, but they yeah. had good enough building codes to have probably reduced a, a sizable portion of that damage. They just weren't forced. Well, one of the things we've seen here in the Philadelphia area, and if you just go north of us, you know, about 20 miles or so, a lot of people that live along the Delaware River obviously have been impacted by the flooding of that river probably, you know, a dozen times over the last 25 years or so. And that has impacted how they have thought. And those smaller towns have thought about the investment in that because and now they're dealing with ice flow jams, you know, in and around Trenton, New Jersey, which is starting to flood over as well. So, I mean, it, it, again, it, it, it's a lot of things that I don't think people think about on a day-to-day -day basis, but they think about them retroactively once something happens. And the challenge is that a lot, you know, there is no one thing, right, that's forcing all of these things to the fore. It's a combination of a lot of small cuts sort right. of making a huge problem for all of these places. And it also is in the, you know, an instance where you have a singular focusing event like you might for a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever. You had this slow accumulation of increasing storm intensity, increasing development intensity until one day, like everything comes to a head and you're forced to reckon with, you know, this generation or decade or two of, of decisions you've made about where to live and how to live. All right. But as a general comment, I think the issue of repetitive flooding is a major issue for our country today. There are lots of areas that have had repetitive flooding, but the question is how, are they, how do we make them safer and how do we actually deal with that? And there's a tendency to say, yes, we have to do something now that we've had the flood, but there's a counteracting tendency to say, look, uh, let's just try to live with it. It's, our, it's a problem, but if we try to do anything major, then we have a half no, notion of having to displace people, which of course, as Bill 
clearly has indicated, and as we all know, is a very hard thing to do. And so mm-hmm. there's a tendency not to deal with it. And I think we have to try to address the issue uh, on a broader level. Uh, but it takes money, and it takes will, and it actually takes some de- desire by the community to deal with that. I mean, the one example that actually did happen in a positive way was Staten Island uh, after yeah. Hurricane Sandy, where there were communities that said, we do not want to continue to live here. And there was actually efforts by Governor Cuomo and HUD, and the Housing and Urban Development, to actually help move these people elsewhere. And these areas now have actually been turned into parks or other areas that are not subject to hurricane damage. Yeah, political leadership matters uh, yeah. immensely in all of these situations. And that's often the difference you see if you were to look at, you know, the communities along the Gulf after Katrina uh, or along, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut after Sandy, uh, the places where strong leadership uh, was in place and who had an idea of how to deal with the the event, uh, those are the places that recovered the fastest and the best. But a lot of that also, where Sandy is concerned, was even New York City itself, Lower Manhattan, because of the flooding that that they had to deal with, uh, with a lot of those office buildings in there as Sandy was rolling through. Yeah, I mean that's the not only the financial nexus or the financial center of the city and the state of New York, it's the you know nation and probably the globe's financial center. So they had to find a way to deal with it. Howard? No, I, I think New York City, though, uh, actually looked at Sandy as a tremendous opportunity right. to really deal with this problem in a better way. And Mayor Bloomberg uh, uh, set up, along with uh, Sean Donovan, who was Secretary of HUD, a whole set of studies to deal with it. And I think what has happened uh, in New York City is there's been a real movement to understand the climate change problem a bit better, to try to develop better maps and actually have actually come up with uh, a set of ideas on how to do this. And so I think that there are opportunities for cities like New York uh, to deal with that. And that's been true of other cities. Cedar Rapids, Iowa, talk about the Midwest, yeah. is a great example of having had a flood in 2008 and realizing that they really had to take some steps. So you have pockets where this has happened. The question is, can we imitate it in other areas? So what does a city like Houston have to do now? I mean, again, a lot of people, as, as we've even said here, this was considered to be a, a once-in-a-hundred-year event in terms of having— or five. Or yeah. 500 year the third event. one in uh, three years. I think they're hoping more like a thousand or two thousand year event. No, but 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 what does the city of Houston have to do to prepare? Because you can't just assume that it's going to be 500 years, Bill. Yeah, I mean the the Houston problem is a really vexing and interesting one because the city itself is as flat as a pancake, right? There's almost yep. no elevational change in the city. Uh, it's geographically huge, uh, so all of that development is dispersed uh, relatively evenly across a huge area. And they poured a ton of concrete they, in the last decade. A ton of concrete, <laughs> and they have no real—like, the the two general categories of options for cities in that situation are either resistance strategies, where they're trying to keep the water out, or avoidance, where they're trying to either move development or lift development out of the floodway. And it's not clear that they're going to have a lot of good, a- good options for either one. I think the most uh, likely outcome is that they find a way to incentivize new infill development into places where they can strategically protect them and they let the areas outside either be slowly depopulated or they actually go in and start buying people out and trying to move them into places where they can protect them. Howard? And the only other point, and Billy may be able to comment on that certainly better than I do because he knows the area uh, very well, uh, is if you can have new construction that actually is placed in the right areas, appropriate regulations for areas, and maybe that doesn't exist in Houston anymore, (laughs) that you can have land use regulation, but certainly to sort of say to anything that is new, can we deal with that? (laughs) 
844-942-7866 is the number to join us. Your comments are welcome. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't join us by phone, you're more than welcome to send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Howard Cunruther of the Wharton School joining us here in studio along with Billy Fleming of the University of Pennsylvania School of Design. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, uh, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I guess one of the things also to touch on here in the last few minutes is the fact that when you think about the South, uh, the areas of Georgia and northern Florida and Alabama and Mississippi, they will see winter weather from time to time. But the fact that, that recently places like Jacksonville, Florida saw snow, it, it, it's not a forecast of what we should expect you know, long term, but it is something just to kind of take note, correct? Yeah, and I think people overlook how disruptive events like that are in places like Jacksonville. I mean, I grew up in Arkansas, which uh, is a little further north than Jacksonville, but not that much. And the every four or five year snow event we got would essentially cripple the whole state for days at a time. Yeah, they would cancel school and cancel work uh, if there was forecasted snow because they have no way to deal with it. And I don't know if there's a good answer for that because it is such a low probability and event uh, in a place like a Jacksonville or in Atlanta or wherever. Um, but it's a hugely disruptive thing. It shuts down airports. It's a, that was the story in Dallas-Fort Worth uh, at the start of the year. Uh, they had no way to deal with a, a small bit of ice and snow that came in. So, um, yeah, it's a huge problem. And again, one of the one of the challenges that climate change poses to cities like that is that it's not necessarily going to make every place uniformly warmer or uniformly colder or uniformly more wet or more dry. It's going to increase volatility. Uh, and most of our yeah. cities aren't well prepared to deal with that. Howard? Well, I think the, the, a challenge in any city is going to be what's the benefit and cost of investing in a lot of equipment and a lot of things that deal with that. Washington, D.C. always has that problem. You don't have to yeah. go down south. They have a, a snowstorm and everything closes in, in the city. Uh, but if you take a place like Jacksonville or in the south, or let me give you an example, out on the west, uh, Eugene, Oregon, uh, they had a major snowstorm totally unexpected a number of years ago. And a colleague of mine, Paul Slovic, who lives there, told me that the entire city was set, shut down for uh, over a week simply because they didn't have a snowplow. They didn't have any equipment at all to deal with that. So I think you have that problem. How much are we going to invest and how much are we going to prepare? And so these things are not easy to deal with, as we know. They're low probability events, but when they happen, they can be very, very serious. So, I mean, just to sum this up, I mean, the investment and the forethought are really the two uh, two key uh, critical uh, pieces here for a lot of cities around the United States. That's right. I think the investment is certainly in equipment is one thing, but for people in the city, and that would be go for any city, preparing for trying to get warnings and trying to get some notion of how they are going to deal with that unexpected event. When it does happen, they're in better shape. So we come back to the issue of planning. How do we actually do the planning ahead of no. time in order to be able to avoid these? So, and that's an area where we need strong uh, leadership from governors and from members of Congress, because I don't know that most people are all that aware of this, but cities are not flush with cash. Yeah. There are very few municipalities. Yeah. Uh, it's not just Philly. It's all over the place yeah. uh, who can't afford, you know, to fix potholes, let alone to invest in the kind of long term thinking and physical infrastructure you need to deal with all of this stuff. Uh, they need help from their governors and states and from their members of Congress and Congress itself. Great having you both here. Thanks very much Thanks for, having for coming us. in. Howard Kunruther from the Wharton School, Billy Fleming from the University of Pennsylvania School of Design. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.